0: We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I would deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was it with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from whom... Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people, must most to be pitied.
1: This morning we're jumping ahead a bit in the Gospels, in the series that we're in. We'll come back to that series as we chronologically are walking through the life of Christ and praying that God might magnify Him such in our lives that we would see Him more clearly. But this morning, because it's Easter, I want to direct your thoughts to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I hope that when you read something like we just read, that you think, this is important to know. One of the things that I hear often as a pastor from people is I, I can't understand it all. There's so much. How can I know how it all fits together? Well, certainly there, there is a lot of revelation in Scripture. One of the ways I answer that is to say that it centers in Christ. This book is about Jesus Christ. It has one theme and it's about Christ. Christ. But here in this text this morning, we get even some more um, emphasis on a passage when it says to us this, I have delivered to you, Paul's writing, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. And then he goes on to say what is of first importance. Let me read it to you again. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, unborn, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted The church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. Paul says, I'm telling you what is of first importance. When you see wording like that in Scripture, you need to listen. You need to look at it long and dwell upon it often. He's speaking of the resurrection of Christ. As I've already said this morning, if there is no resurrection... We just as well go home because we are the most to be pitied of all people if our hope is only for this life. If all Christ came to do was to make this life a little better, we're told we ought to be pitied above all. We believed in vain. Go eat, drink, and be merry because it doesn't matter. But that's not what Paul says. He says indeed Christ has been raised. There really are two questions that people wrestle with often concerning the resurrection. One is, is it true? Is the resurrection true? And the second question of that is, does it matter or how does it matter? Why does it make any difference? What I want to do this morning is I want to look at both of those questions quickly with you this morning. And I hope that that after we've done that, that we will have taken away reasons for you to have dismissed this thing of first importance, if in fact you have. If you've dismissed it, first of all, maybe because you just can't believe it's true, I hope we can help. And secondly, if you've dismissed it because even though you may believe it's true, you just don't see any relevance in your life, hopefully both of those things will be helped this morning. I just want to give you six reasons quickly why I believe that it is true. Six reasons that I think come out of Scripture of why the resurrection is a significant historical event. In fact, the most significant historical event in all of history. Everything centers and and revolves around it. First of all, Jesus claimed His own claim that He would rise from the dead. John 2.19, we looked at it as we went through our series. Jesus said, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it. Jesus said that. John recorded it. And a little later here, we'll read a passage when they tried to make sure that Jesus' body was not stolen and all of the authorities took extra measures to make sure that nobody took the body out of the tomb. That passage may very well have been the one that they were quoting because they said that Christ said, If I die in three days, I will rise again. We don't know exactly what passage they were thinking of or whether that passage is even recorded in in the text of the Bible. But the authorities were convinced that Jesus had said, if you kill me, I'll rise in three days. They believed it enough to take extra measures to make sure that that it didn't happen by deception. Jesus claimed that He would rise from the dead. Does that in itself prove it? Does one's own declaration of something they're going to do prove it? No. But one of the amazing things about Christ in all of history. Now, certainly there are people who dismiss him. There are people who scoff at him. There are people who mock him. But there also is a great host of people who, though they will not say he is Savior, they will say he was a great teacher, a great moral teacher. And what he taught was coherent and it has application to life. There are many in those ranks who would declare that. But I say to you this morning, that can't be true if he lied about this. How can he be a great moral teacher if the one who said in three days I will rise again didn't? What does that have to do with integrity? C.S. Lewis probably said it as well as any you, you have three options with Christ. We've said this before, but you either can de- decide he's a liar, that when he said, if you kill me in three days, I'll rise, that he was just flat out lying, deceiving the people. Maybe he set up the whole hoax for his disciples to steal the body. I mean, that's what you have to believe. Or secondly, that he was a lunatic. That in fact, he did believe it. He just was out of his mind. He just was deluded. Or thirdly, it's true, and he's Lord, that he did die and in three days rose from the dead. Jesus declared, I will rise if you kill me. Secondly, another reason that I think the resurrection is true is the empty tomb and the inability to produce a body. The authorities could not produce his body and Oh, you know, they would have attempted to do that if it were anywhere to be found. Because they knew, and the Scripture says they knew, that Jesus had predicted that he would rise in three days. And they knew if there's an empty tomb, they better find a body or they're in big trouble. Look at the text if you want to in Matthew chapter 27. Here we read about Jesus' burial. And it says in verse 62, next day, That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, in verse 62, and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The authorities were afraid, as I said, that the disciples would steal the body. So they made sure that that couldn't have happened. That it wouldn't happen. Some believe that it was the cool of the tomb that awakened Jesus. And that he somehow got the burial claws off and was revived and rolled away the stone, which is preposterous, the size of the stone for one man in the condition that Jesus was in to do it, let alone a healthy man to move that kind of a stone. There was an empty tomb and they never produced a body. The third reason is, is the dramatic change in the disciples. You read the account of the Gospels about the disciples They ran with their tail between their legs as Jesus was crucified. Even Peter, even Peter, who Jesus had said, you will deny me three times, denied the Lord and went out weeping. Their nets were looking pretty good to them at that point and they would have returned immediately for fear of the authorities and what they might do to them. And so they hid out in a room and when the first reports of Jesus Resurrection came, they doubted them. Those disciples were transformed completely a few days later. The apostles themselves, 11 of them died martyrs' deaths. One, John, was was uh, exiled. But 11 of them died martyrs' deaths. Think about that for a minute. Think about the transformation and then think about the fact, would you die for a lie? Because they would have had to know it was a lie. If they were the ones who took the body, they would have had to know about the deception. Now, men are willing to die for a lie only if they believe it's the truth. They don't die for a lie that they conjured up. The change in the disciples. Number four. The eyewitnesses in the account that we read this morning in first Corinthians. Look at it there. It it goes on and it talks about all that Christ appeared to. And the last one is Paul, the one untimely born. But in the middle of that, it says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Written 20 years later. 20 years later, as Paul pins these words to the Corinthians. There were still most of those 500 alive who could be interviewed and could be asked, did you see the risen Christ? And would still declare yes because of the transforming effect it had upon their lives. 500 witnesses to the resurrection. The gospel writers themselves is another reason. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's what we're doing in our series. We're just immersing ourselves in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Looking at the chronological life of Christ. I I encourage you, if you're wrestling with the truth of the resurrection, just immerse yourself even more within those Gospels. And as we chronologically walk along with the life of Christ, just ask God to help you to see the integrity of those writers. And how their storyline hangs together. How they don't break ranks. Read the Scripture. The Scripture's revelation of the resurrection of Christ. And then finally, the life-transforming effect of Jesus Christ upon people. For almost 35 years now, I've been in ministry, 32 of them here. And as I was pinning this message for you, I began to think of the people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Christ. Lives that were going one direction and they encountered this risen Christ and their lives were turned to go another direction. Just this last Thursday morning as we were at the prayer breakfast, the mayor's prayer breakfast, Daryl Tusher was on on the platform as the MC. And Coach Kreshman shared his journey with Christ. But one of the things he said as he began, he said, I, I don't ever remember a time in my life when I didn't know about Christ and really wasn't sure exactly when he passed from death to life in Christ. But he turned and pointed to Daryl and said, I think your life and your story is different because it happened six years ago in your life. I remember, I remember Daryl coming to visit in the old sanctuary. I remember he came with his wife and his family. And I remember how hard I attempted to get to him after that to just visit him and say it was good to be there. And there there was an obvious wall that I was not able to penetrate through. And so some years later, he comes again. And in that period, some six years ago. Daryl would say that once I was blind, and now I see. He began to see the magnificence of Christ, and it transformed his life. And he is just one of countless many. You have the same story, maybe a little different verse. But Jesus Christ has radically changed the direction of your life. Perfection, no. None of us get there till glory. But a change. And there are countless thousands upon thousands of people who have encountered a living Christ and their lives have been transformed. Testimony to the resurrection of Christ. So, did it happen? I believe it did. I believe there's lots of proofs. Josh McDowell has written volumes on this very thing. Josh McDowell, who in in my era of growing up was was a, a peer, maybe a little older than I am, but Josh McDowell set out to refute the resurrection of Christ. He was smart enough to know that if he could refute it and it didn't happen, then Christianity could be debunked. And that's true. If you can prove there's no resurrection, we are the most to be pitied. Paul would agree. But as he set out To refute the resurrection, his life was dramatically changed by that resurrection. He came to realize there is more evidence in history for the resurrection of Christ than any other event in history. Christ is risen from the dead. He is a living Christ and the resurrection was the confirmation of the Father upon the Son that you have done everything that is needed. Jesus declared it's finished. And right now, sits at the right hand of the Father, the Scripture says, interceding for all who have come to see the glory of that resurrection. The significance of that resurrection have placed their hope in it. So we turn to the second question. Why does it matter? I've already begun to answer it. Individual lives answer that question, but let me, let me go a bit farther. I think the best way to answer that is to, to answer the question that Jesus answered himself. When Jesus was asked, why did he come? Why did you come? This was his response. This is what he said. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The significance, the relevance. As you're wrestling with that, I'm sure even people who are wrestling have heard Jesus died for them. He died for the sins of all who will look to Him and believe in Him and rest in Him. And they won't have to have those sins held against them. So the part of that verse where it says, to give His life for a ransom for many is the biblical story. Even if you don't see any relevance in it, you probably know that story. The problem is, I think, we skip over the first part of his answer to get to the second. And we never really let the first part of that answer sink into our lives. Let me attempt to help it to sink into your life this morning. I want your eyes to focus or your minds to focus at least on these words. The Son of Man came. It says in Mark 10.45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. Think about that a minute. The Son of Man came to serve not to be served. There is ingrained with us that eternal life comes to one who has served Him well. Now, we'll say it in lots of different ways. But Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. What's He mean by that? I think one thing He means is God is not a needy God. God doesn't need anything. The definition of God is He's all-sufficient. We don't somehow serve Him to add something to Him. Who is given to God that He should be repaid, the Scripture says in another place. But that's the way our natural mind sometimes sees the relevance of it all. That we're called to serve Him. And the result is eternal life. Let me stop you again to look at the text. The text says Jesus came to serve, not to be served. When you start to see this, it really begins to show, I think, the relevance of his coming. You see, God's not the one in need, we are. We're the one who needs to be served. Because if we're not, we have no hope. There's a text in your bulletin. It's been there for weeks upon months, probably years. Turn turn in your bulletins. Do you have them there? The very end, The very end of the order of worship there. Look at it. Look at that text. It's not there by accident. It's there by design. The danger of having it there week after week is we don't see it. I hope you see it. I hope you see it every time you open your bulletin. Because that is, that is the gospel. In 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 a sentence, if you understand the resurrection in that context. Listen to what it says. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no eye has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you. In other words, what Isaiah is saying, there is no God like our God. The God of Christianity is absolutely unique among all the gods of the world. And I say small g gods. Of all the gods, of all the nations, of all the peoples, of all the world. There is no god like the Christian god. There is no god like the god who is revealed in scripture. And then he goes on to say why? Because this god acts. And and for a long time we had that banner on that wall and in parentheses were the words what? Say it. He works. He works. God acts, he works. On behalf of those who wait for Him. That's the God of Scripture. That's the relevance of the resurrection. It is God coming to act on our behalf, to work for us in ways that we could not work for ourselves. If He didn't come and act and work in the way He acted and worked, there's no hope. But this God did. I hope I hope that sometime you will take that passage of Scripture and clip it. In fact, you'll clip it and put it many places. And it will burn into your soul what it says there. Because that describes the relevance of the resurrection. In a nutshell. That God came to act And to work on behalf of a people. And who are those people? Those people who realize how desperately they needed that God to come and act and work. How desperately they needed that God to serve them in some very basic needs that they have in their life. Needs, except that God do it. There is no way those needs would ever get met. I say there are three. There are three needs in your life that... God came to serve. The first need that He came to serve is your sin problem. If God had not come, if Christ had not been raised, the Scripture plainly says that we're still in our sins. The Christian gospel teaches that it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That causes you to not have to any longer be under the penalty of your sin. And that is the only way this Bible tells us it can happen. We know that because he goes on to say, if he's not raised, you're still in your sin. Look at it in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. But the declaration is Christ has been raised God has worked on our behalf in such a way that we do not have to be in our sin any longer. He came to serve us in that regard. In the deepest and most profound need of anyone's life. There is no more important need that needs to be met in your life than to know your sin will not be held against you. If you know that, it is the most precious thing you can know in all of the world. And it rests in the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection, as I've already said, the declaration by God the Father that God the Son did everything that was needed and necessary. That His righteousness could be upheld and our sin could be forgiven. The only way the only way that could happen was that a just price be paid. That one come to serve and serve in regards to paying the just price that we all deserve to pay because of our sin. That's why we say that Christ, when He when he was on the cross, that He experienced an infinite suffering. Because that's what would have been extracted from all and will be extracted from all who do not wait for this God to work on their behalf in this way. Christ took an infinite suffering upon himself for us. He served us in that way. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The second thing the Scripture says that we needed and only He could provide and only He could serve us with was in a way to overcome death. The sting of death has been removed. The Scripture declares to us in verse 26, look at what it says. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things into subjection under His feet including death. Our sin, He served us by paying an infinite price. He defeated death. It no longer has to hold us. It's why I could say this morning, as Matthew sang at that funeral, as he sang to the people who gathered to remember Miranda, to live is Christ, but to die. Is gain. If there's anything I hope hangs over the doorpost of this body is that we believe that and we live out that belief in our lives. We are not just living for hope in this life. If so, we are the most to be pitied. What Jesus Christ did was not to give us a better life now, period. It was to defeat death and sin. To live as Christ for the Christian. And to die is gain, as I said, whether twenty or eighty. It is gain because of the resurrection. And then finally, and I close with this this morning, the third need that we have is to live for His glory. The reason Christ had to come and serve rather than be served is because we had an inherent need to live for the glory of God. You understand that, don't you? The reason and the definition of sin is that we were told whether we eat or drink or whatever we do to live for the glory of God. But what does it say in Romans? All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. All of us have fallen short of living whether we eat or drink or any other way in our lives, for His glory. Sin is about defaming the glory of God. And we have a need now. We have a need because our sin has been forgiven, because death has been overcome, to live for His glory again. Unbelievers don't live for the glory of God. You can't. Unbelievers cannot live for the glory of God. It's not in their mindset but for a believer, when we come to life and we see what He's done and how he served us and providing for our sin and overcoming death and the fear of death, we begin to want to live for His glory. That's what rises up in our soul. But again, we need Him. We need Him to serve us in regard to give us the grace, to give us the help to live for the glory of God. Scripture says He will meet all of our needs. What does it mean that God will meet all of our needs? I think it's those three needs. Our sin problem, our death problem, and our living for His glory problem. The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And the question I end with this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? For yourself, Do you see and believe that He came to serve you in that way? That's different often than what, what we get of the picture of the Christian life, isn't it? We see it as his, us serving Him. But the Scripture says He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And when you start to see that, you start to live for His glory. Not as a way of serving to somehow earn the forgiveness of our sins and be able to overcome death. But because you've begun to see His glory. You've begun to see that we have a God like none other. There is no God like our God. No God who comes to serve like our God comes. I hope you know that reality this morning. We're going to sing this morning at the close as we began at the beginning. Rebecca taught us a new song, a new hymn written by the Gettys. We want to close with it this morning. Let's stand together.
2: Those who tell of battles won and those struggling in the fight. For His perfect love will never change and His mercies never cease. But follow us through all our days with a certain hope of peace. sure we hear them call the truth.
1: of all who will wait for you all who will look to you all who will look is to act and to work on their behalf to deal with their sin and to overcome death and to give them all the grace they need in every circumstance, to live for the glory of God. Oh, we're a needy people, Lord. We need You to act. Teach us to cry out to You to act and to work on our behalf. And Lord, if there's some here this morning who maybe, who maybe have been rejecting the relevance of the message... I pray this morning, Lord, they might have eyes to see the Savior who came not to be served, but to serve their most important need. Lord, help them. Help them to look to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a blessed Easter. I'm going to remain up front. If you'd like to visit, I'd be delighted to visit with you. You're dismissed.